0: The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, The Drawing Specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, The Future of Intelligent Buildings.
1: Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work. Perspective on the adjacent possible and challenges to the status quo.
2: Welcome to the Oedipus Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator. Are you going to be agitating today, Adam? Oh, yeah, I'm feeling extra (laughs) horrible today. He's a longtime friend and Yoda, most everything to do with buildings. Welcome.
3: Adam, Mr. Adam Buggleton, say hello, Sir Yoda. Hello there. So today we are back in my country, in the home planet of the UK. <laughs> really looking forward to this one because it uh, touches a few of my trigger buttons.
2: <laughs> yeah, today uh, our guest really could do a masterclass on sustainability. She has a degree in environmental engineering. She has in her resume things that you don't normally see. She's an UNESCO, a special envoy for youth and the environment currently managing director of Element 4, and we'll talk about that. One of the most things I like about her resume, she has the word activist in it. Adam, we ever had a guest with the word activist? No, no yeah. that's
3: a bold <laughs> statement. I love that. Yeah, absolutely. So welcome to the show, Georgia Elliott Smith.
4: Hi, lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, Georgia, we go through your resume. I mean, really, it's, it's a list of someone who... You must have got bit early on with the sustainability, earth stewardship bug. And when you look at all the places that you've been, places that you've sort of touched on, you've just been building a career around the whole story of sustainability. Tell us how you found yourself in that place.
4: Gosh, well, you know, back at school, I was a bit of a... A bit of an academic nerd. And I liked all kinds of things. I liked English and creativity, but I also loved sciences. And I sort of decided, you know, what did I think would be the most interesting career? And particularly my mum, who was a journalist, was very keen for me to go into the sciences. And I did, you know, and I, I was naturally very curious about that. So I did. And and my career has sort of landed me in construction through generally just following the next thing in front of me rather than having some grand plan. You know, I ended up studying sciences at my A levels and then I went off to university and I knew at uni that I wanted to do something really, you know, particularly interested me and I was very interested in the environment and I don't really know where that came from. I think it was just a sort of hand of God thing, you know, that it It just came to me that I thought, if I'm going to study engineering, if I'm going to study something in the world, I want it to be interesting, you know, and something that I can relate to. I grew up in the country. I was never massively into environmental issues as a kid, but it just was something that as a sort of teenager, young adult going into my studies, I thought sounded interesting. But when I started looking around at degree courses, there was no real way of getting involved in environmental issues other than becoming an ecologist or something like that. And I knew I wasn't cut out for that. I knew I wanted to go into engineering. I eventually found a course that offered, it was the first course at the university that was being offered, which was environmental engineering. So I was the first cohort back in the 90s. And really, you could tell I was the first cohort because they it was, you know, the degree was just chucked together. It was a bit of this, a bit of that, a bit of architecture, a bit of mechanical, a bit of civils, a bit of law, a bit of policy. You know, it was a bit of everything. But I love that. And I think that's kind of been the path I've followed throughout my entire career is being super curious about lots of different things. And really having that background of knowing a, a bit about everything is super useful in sustainability because you do have to touch on so many different topics. Yes. so That's kind of my background, really, in study
3: that was a really good point well made there that you have to know a bit about everything and then also be a specialist in sustainability right you yeah. got to have the breadth to have the depth
4: yeah absolutely and yeah. i think the you know what what happened to me the reason i then ended up in construction was really something that set me up for my whole life which is just being incredibly pushy so when I was looking around my universities for potential courses I'd overheard somebody saying that they were sponsored and they would get money from a company to study and I thought oh my god that's amazing you know I didn't yeah. have any money so I found out about this and all the applications had closed but I just wrote off loads of letters to companies saying hey I'm a woman I'm studying engineering and I really want to you know be in the environmental stuff and environment's kind of a big deal you should be in on it. I'm looking for sponsorship. Fancy sponsoring me. And I got a few offers, one from a a water utility company, one from a construction company and so on. And the the best offer came from construction. And that's really just how I ended up landing in the construction industry as a paid undergraduate, you know, working on site and doing all kinds of cool stuff. So yeah, that was...
3: I just want to put a pin in that. What a great thing, right? So most people would just get their A levels. This is the UK. You get your A levels before you go to university, right? And then they would go to university and hopefully they'd take a, the mum and dad would pay or they would get a loan, right? So you went out and got sponsors. I like that. Now, yeah, that's it. Anyone yeah. who's struggling, do that. You're going yeah. to get rejected if you write 100 letters. 99 will probably reject you if you only need one win, right? Yeah. One hit, absolutely. And that's it. So there's a
4: yeah, this is this is what I say to people. I speak to students all the time. You know, I spend quite a lot of time in my career going and speaking at schools and universities and colleges and stuff. And I do say, you know, there's there are so many rules out there and, you know, deadlines and things. But it's easy to think everybody else is more qualified and everybody else has got these kind of, you know, great skills. And particularly when I'm mentoring women, I say this too, is go out there and grab it, you know. And if somebody says, oh, I'm sorry, applications have closed, yeah, whatever. Send in your application anyway. You know, just go for it. Don't try because you never know. The person at the other end might be tearing their hair out saying these applicants are all rubbish, you know, and oh God, we've got to pick from one of this lot. And then if yours arrives, they won't care that it's late. They'll go, oh my God, where's this person come from? It's amazing. So you never know. You never know. So what
2: we're hearing is the soul of the activist and you use the term hand of God. So you're an or- you're an ordained activist <laughs> but that's it you, know, Absolutely. You, just, you just nailed it right there you know you don't give up yeah you just keep going keep trying until you you know make that breakthrough it's, yeah it's, uh, yeah george i want to have a couple questions for you i mean adam and i have had many many guests on over the years and and you know the words green and sustainability and you have an issue with greenwashing just like we have hmm. an issue with washing and Are you finding the word sustainability getting to that place where people actually, it's used so often in so many ways it actually has lost its meaning?
4: Yeah, totally. I think I kind of celebrated when the term ESG came along because that felt like, a kind of rebranding of sustainability into this kind of slightly more meaningful topic that financial markets were really interested in and engaged with. But then super quickly, that became a greenwashy term. And now that's just a really gamified in the markets. You know, big polluters know how to gamify the whole ESG rating system. and, And so that's just become meaningless as well. And so, you know, I think the word sustainability, everybody kind of thinks they know it. They kind of think they're doing it. It's one of those meh kind of words. I haven't come up with a better word yet, though. So we still call ourselves sustainability consultants. But what we do say now is disrupt. what I say is we are disruptive sustainability consultants. we We push disruptive sustainability because actually disruptive is this kind of terrible Silicon Valley kind of word, isn't it? But yeah, you know, true. but but for me, that's the reality is that people have got to a point with sustainability where it's just like, mm, yeah, we've got we've got one of them. You know, we've got a sustainability plan. We've got a sustainability manager. You know, what else have you got? It's like, well, no, you haven't. Because if you if you had a proper sustainability plan, if your sustainability manager was properly empowered and educated and an activist, you'd be doing better. So don't tell me that you've got, you're all over sustainability. You're not. I don't care who you are. You're not, you know. Yeah. And I think I and that's that. where I'm coming from. We still use the word sustainability, but we try to make it meaningful.
2: Yeah, well, we've talked about the transition of words and um, after we go through the whole dictionary of words, buzzwords, at the end of the day, doesn't it all come down to earth stewardship?
4: Yeah, I think this is a, it's a really interesting point. I think earth stewardship, but also societal stewardship, because there's a mm-hmm. massive element within sustainability. And we, we tend to talk about sustainability right. as a as a proxy for environment or environmental impact, environmental action. Actually, it's not. It's it's about sustaining business, communities, you know, the planet in a way that's in balance with one another. And if, if any of those is out of balance, then it is not sustainable. It cannot continue, on, you know, forever. And so... There's a a massive, massive, I think, largely ignored element of sustainability, which is around social justice and is around community engagement and people. You know, we only have to look at work and the mental health crisis that's going on in the world everywhere, you know, and and I think that tells us there's more that we need to deal with as corporates, particularly in organisations, than just environmental issues.
3: I think sustainability is on the hero's journey, you know, where the hero leaves the village or the town that goes for well. Then they have the setback. Then they overcome the setback and come on. And I think mm. sustainability is in that setback phase. So mm. when you use the word activist or disruption, it implies like insurgency. It's like I'm a I'm a I'm a corporate terrorist, right? And some people look at you that way, I guess, mm-hmm. right? And the, yeah, of course. You know, and that's I think the setback phase in hero's journey because the the end of that journey is when sustainability becomes a cultural phenomenon and it's just mm-hmm. embedded in the culture, right? So for example, I went to Costa Rica last year. Yeah, my well, life's awesome. And, um, <laughs> what's fascinating there is you walk down beaches, there's no cigarette butts, there's no trash or garbage, right? They have a, a culture of sustainability in the, oh, it's not indoctrinated, but there is, everyone seems to be aware there's a stewardship thing going on and there's a very mm-hmm. conscious societal reaction to like, Let's not stuff stuff. Let's not put rubbish in the sea. Let's clear things up. Let's keep things nice. Let's do Mm -hmm. the greener thing. Right. And it's actually the first place I've ever been where I've seen that embedded in the societal culture. And I thought to myself, that is the ultimate destination for what you're doing. Right.
4: Well, I've never been to Costa Rica. I have to admit, I'm very jealous, but. You know, I think there's cultures of communities and the way in which they deal with sustainability. And I think that we can learn a lot of lessons from different cultures around the world and how they deal with sustainability Uh, in their communities and in their policy and their lawmaking or or even just their embedded behaviours, you know, as communities. But I think there's also a massive problem in terms of the environment in which they exist. So multinational culture, you know, the way in which big multinationals like Coca-Cola and Unilever and all these big corporates are selling products into those economies that are creating massive problems you know social problems like obesity and and you know health problems but also massive waste problems and pollution problems for those communities so even if those communities are inherently clean living and inherently Sustainable in the way that they like to behave, the enormous pressure from marketing and westernized lifestyles Mm. is a massive problem, you know, and it's really very abusive. You know, it breaks into communities and systems and and ends up polluting and overwhelming them, you know, and I think that's something that we really need to take to the doorstep of those big organizations and get them to take account of and and take responsibility for.
2: You know, when I look at some of the stuff, it's like it has velocity and the critical mass has been building... When do we reach or do we ever reach a breaking point? You know, because when you talked about societal stewardship, I think that's really important too. But you're right, we see all these this velocity of critical mass of marketing, and we see the stresses that are created within the environment and business systems too, and the inequalities that have that have occurred. How do you stop that train? How do you correct it? You know, there was a there's a philosophy, I think it called the broken window principle. And they applied it in um, cities, and I think in one particular example was Philadelphia, where or was it Detroit? You know, where the vandals broke everything. They broke every piece of glass in one particular neighborhood, and they painted everything, and it was it just became terrible. But the municipal officials said, "We have a problem here. We need to fix it." And so they embarked on a program where any time a piece of glass, a window was broken, they fixed it. If something got vandalized, it was repaired. If it was tagged, they repainted it. And they just were persistent. And eventually, the people that were causing the damage gave up. And people started to appreciate their environment. When do we hit that point in the world where everybody stands back and says, okay, enough is enough. We mm-hmm. have to start fixing things today rather than let the velocity continue.
4: You know, that that's a really interesting point. And I think we're at a a point now, and and activists particularly are trying to push for this, is a point at which we can open our eyes to what is going on. Because I think there is such a an apathy generally in the community that you expect politicians to be corrupt. You expect these massive corporates to get away with murder. You expect this, you know, and and there's a kind of learned helplessness around, well, what can I do about it? You know, what what am I supposed to do? I'm just me. And I think, you know, it was Extinction Rebellion which brought me out of my stupor. You know, before Extinction Rebellion, before, two, you know, part of my journey, which I, I haven't talked about yet, is, is my journey from being an environmental professional to becoming an activist. That, I think, is a journey that anybody can go on. And I really, when I speak at conferences, when I speak to people, you know, in all of my LinkedIn communications and posts, what I'm trying to do is encourage people to, to jump that, you know, gap to to jump over that canyon to be, to understand that you can both be a respected professional and an activist and Mm. you can start saying no more. I see what's going on. I see it and I'm going to take my power and I'm going to do what I can. And of course, I can't do everything, but I'm a specialist in my field and I know... This particular part of industry, I know this particular thing, and that is what I can change. And that is then part of a whole web of action that if we can then empower others in other industries and sectors and doing what they do, then, you know, that creates something that's much bigger than its parts. That's a social movement. And, you know, like I say, it was the Extinction Rebellion experience that changed me and brought me along on that journey and has brought me here.
3: So, can you talk a bit more about that? Because I love that journey from like, uh... Respected professional to activist, for one of a better word, right? And you're still a respected mm. professional. I'm not saying not am a but activist implies rebellion. Implies you know you've joined a rebel force and you're fighting. Yeah. So, <laughs> what, what was the trigger and how? How? Just talk us through that journey for you. Yeah.
4: So for 25 years, I've been working as a sustainability professional in construction and property. As I mentioned to you, I was an environmental engineer. You know, I I was working in house, in house sustainability manager at major contractors. I had run my own business and so on, and I'd been doing well. I've been doing very well. You know, I I'd, I'd got to a level of seniority in my career and been doing lots of work for a very impressive list of clients. You know, big international clients, and been doing some really really good projects where we'd been able to demonstrate that we'd done good things. But I always knew, always knew knew that we'd had to make compromises on those projects. And I always knew there was so much more that we could do. But I ended up having to celebrate the micro successes. And, you know, and I always knew those clients would looking at the one sort of example project that we were working on, massively overblowing the significance of that project, it would be one or two in a whole portfolio of hundreds or thousands. That right. would be the project that would go on the website that would go in the brochures, I would go to speak to their investors at their AGM, you know, it would be It would be blown out of all proportion in terms of what they were actually doing as their business as usual. And I knew that. And I was very uncomfortable with it, but I sort of pacified myself to say, well, at least I'm doing something. I'm doing what I can. Then it got to 2018. And this had been, this disquiet in me had just been increasing all the time. And I was just looking around for what on earth can I do? You know, and all of these reports that the Amazon was on fire, you know, it was the, the, documentaries on the BBC here in the UK showing us, you know, the David Attenborough documentaries really hard hitting about climate change and its impacts on on species and the planet. And I ended up kind of going into a massive eco-anxiety grief, you know, like I realised it really hit home that I was the problem, you know, in that my work... Had created this veneer of greenwash over business as usual that had enabled polluting businesses to continue their practices, hoodwinking regulators and the public into thinking that they were doing more than they actually were. And it was through that realization I went into a huge period of grief and sort of soul-searching, and I call it my dark night of the soul, you know, where I was up all night for weeks, you know and pacing the house, like writing like fury at my computer at three in the morning, crying, you know, going down rabbit holes on YouTube, looking at, you know, terrible consequences of these raging wildfires and things, you know, and, and it was at the end of 2018 that the IPCC report came out, you know, the 1.5 degrees into you know, the 1.5, what was it called? It was called, the report was called 1.5 degrees and it was where we, Uh, first learned about these 12 years to the catastrophic tipping points Mm. and that was that was the turning point for me and I was like I have to be part of the solution I cannot continue in the way I always have I have to face up to this because this is now a reality you know this I can't hide and it was that spring I I was searching around for what on earth I could do and feeling very powerless and not quite knowing how to walk that line between being a professional and wanting to speak out, but wanting to keep my job, you know, and all of those things. (laughs) And I ended up, yeah, I just thought, I don't want to be the crazy person, you know, what do I do? And it was in March 2019 that the Extinction Rebellion, big rebellion happened in central London. And I went along and, and joined that. That was my sister was staying with me, actually, the weekend that it all kicked off. And it was her. She said to me, I'm surprised you're not there. It oh. made me stop in my tracks. And I just said, oh, my God, I'm surprised I'm not there. <laughs> you know, and it, but that was the, the point <laughs> of which that cognitive dissonance between I'm right. a professional, I'm not an activist, you know, made me think, oh, look at all of these crusty people on the street. I'm not one of them. But it was when she said that to me, it was like a punch in the guts, really, of me, me waking up and going, right. And, and that day, I, I, that was it. I just got my stuff, picked up my bag, went to central London, took my 10-year-old son with me. You know, We went to sort of go and have a look at what was going on. And, and ever since that day, I've been an activist. And it's been the most incredible journey. I've absolutely loved it. And it, it totally changed my life.
3: So can you define activist? Because some people will hear that and think, you're like a terrorist. And some people think, oh, you're just like this woo-woo person with a placard. So what does activist mean for you?
4: As someone who's taking action. Mm. Someone who's taking action, meaningful action. You know, and I think this is, this is the difference for me, is that I, I am no longer quiet. I'm no longer minding my tongue. I'm no longer sitting quietly, complicitly, listening to the lies. My I am driven to act in protection of the planet. And I will not tolerate activity that is contrary to that. And so I don't know how to define activism. It's it's just, that's what it is for me is I know I, it's almost like a kind of road to Damascus thing. That's probably the second time I've, I've mentioned God, you know, (laughs) as in, you know, I just, yeah, I, I kind of feel like my, it had been building for some time. So, you know, it didn't just suddenly happen to me, but there was that moment in embracing the term activism where I just thought this is where I need to be. You know, my journey has brought me here. And this, this is where I have so I've got 25 years of experience in this, you know, I'm not some Johnny come lately, I know what's going on in my industry, I know it, I live it. And I'm not going to stand for it anymore. So it was then I made that kind of commitment that I am going to dedicate my life, my it is my life's purpose Uh, to meaningful change in my industry. And I won't sit quietly by whilst others promote mediocrity or greenwash or try to hide poor performance. I will challenge it. I will call it out. And what I'm trying to tread a line between is doing that in a way which is challenging and confronting because that's what it needs to be, but also trying to be kind and tolerant with the journey that other people have to go on as well because not everyone's yeah. an asshole. do you know what they're not doing this you know, yeah, not
3: everyone's <laughs> a malicious actor
4: right really? no and I think people yeah. Yeah. there are a lot of well-meaning people who are trying their best but I think they're labouring under a either false illusions or they are not empowered they don't understand what actual meaningful action looks like and so they're busy yeah. doing things that aren't meaningful yeah. And I think that's really my purpose is to try and activate meaningful change and call out those who genuinely are standing in the way of progress.
2: Well, it's multidimensional. And when I think, you know, when you talked about early on, like in 2019 or 2018, what you were doing was a veneer, you know, your words, it was a veneer, which is a great way of looking at it. And it's not until you add a third dimension, which is your realization, okay, this isn't good enough just to, be this veneer like you have there has to be some depth and purpose to your meaning and it has to be not just one project but everything that you do but the fourth dimension in that is is the activists you know thing to paint a veneer it's nothing to recognize to a third dimension okay well this doesn't this is bigger than just one project but making becoming that next person who you become the activist that requires another dimension
3: Activism can be combative and a form of fighting, if you like, like nerd fighting, if you're us. But it can also be a game of enrollment, right? Right. So you've clearly, your soul on the road to Damascus moment was basically a change in core values, right? Your core values shifted over, is how Mm. I would interpret Mm. it. And I guess the next game for you is, how can you enroll people in these core values en masse, Mm. right? Because my thing is this. I'm an angry old dude. You're like a proper professional who's not getting angry, as far as I can see. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Adam, <laughs> I'm angry. I'm oh, I
4: can, I, can, I can get very angry. <laughs>
3: <laughs> aggregate, my thing is this the most powerful untapped force in the world is aggregate consumer demand. I'll give you an example yeah. BlackBerry funds, right? Everyone had one till no one had one because there was a consumer rebellion against them, right? We're going for this other shiny thing. Don't like that anymore, right? So to get real meaningful change, to impact all the goals that are out there, you have to have a consumer, let's call it a consumer rebellion or a consumer strike. And what does that look like? Less people doing harmful stuff, right? So your goal as an activist is how I would see it, is you've got to enroll people on that rebellion, if you want, that disobedience.
4: I have chosen a different route to that myself. I think my personal feeling is that I don't put the responsibility at the level of the individual. You know, I don't ever blame people for the choices that they make in terms of what they buy or, you know... I use disposable coffee cups. I use disposable water bottles. You know, I sometimes I take out my coffee cup with me, but I don't feel squeamish about getting a disposable coffee cup. You know, and and if anybody says to me, "Hang on a minute, aren't you an environmentalist and you're using a, a plastic water bottle?" I'm like, "Yeah, I live in the world. You know, I yes. live in this society that we have created, and this is the way that this society is built." There's a great term. I don't know if you've heard it. That George, I learned from George Mombio the amazing author and activist and journalist. If you don't know his articles in the Guardian newspaper in the UK or any of his books, I highly recommend them. He's a, I think he's a genius. But anyway, he's coined this term, micro-consumerist bollocks, which I just think is so perfect. So I like that <laughs> Yeah, what this term is about, it's about saying it suits governments and major corporates really well to say it's your fault. It's your fault, naughty consumer for buying plastic bottles. And if you didn't buy them, we wouldn't make them. So you're the problem. Now, that's bollocks. That's absolute bollocks because the way that they have, they've captured markets, they've created these products, they've created these systems. Like if we look at Coca-Cola, you know, I started a petition last year when they became announced as the sponsors of COP27. I was like, I had another all-nighter. I was like, that's not <laughs> happening on my watch. No way. So I just went to my computer and just started a petition because I was like, I don't know what to do about this, but it's outrageous. And it got a quarter of a million signatures, you know, and I was, it just blew up because we know that that's bullshit. We know it's bullshit. That's yeah. just so wrong. But when you start looking at it, Coca-Cola manufactures 200,000 single-use plastic bottles a minute, And they mainly sell those into economies that have no organized waste management system. Mm. And they do not pay a penny towards the cost of cleaning up that mess. And they actively lobby governments to prevent deposit return schemes, you know, different types of mandating different types of packaging, banning single use plastic, and so on. So we are not in this neoliberal system whereby there are natural flows of money and commerce. And the system is rigged by these massively powerful interests who create the economy that serves their interests and their profit. And so, you know, that to me, it doesn't matter how many plastic bottles you use, you are not the problem. The problem is the governments that allow these mega corporates to get away with perpetrating these massively environmentally abusive business models. They need regulating. And when they are regulated, we will just buy whatever we're sold. That's just, we will adapt. So I don't put the blame on the consumer. I put the blame on the weak governments, the corruptible governments, and the massively corrupt corporate systems that lobby for these, for the pollution that ends up happening and the abuses. That's where I take my fight.
3: Yeah. So Mm. your activism is trying to do like a top-down approach, attack the oligarchy and Change the offering to the consumer.
4: And from the bottom up as well, try to open people's eyes to what is going on. Because people, when you start talking about being an environmental activist, they take it very personally. Oh, you're stopping me from going about my business. You're telling me that I can't fly to go on holiday. You know, you're telling me I can't have a new pair of trainers. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm not telling you any of that. You live your life, but open your eyes to what's going on. You know, billionaires paying... US billionaires on average pay 0.3% tax. It's an absolute insanity. The most generous billionaires in the UK are Gates and Buffett and they paid 3% tax last year. You know, and this is insane. I, I worked out the figures for the UK that we've got massive public sector strikes going on at the moment. You yeah. know, I, I, you probably have in, in, in other countries around the world as well. If the UK billionaires were taxed appropriately according to the spirit of of the taxation laws that we have the tax that we could raise from that would be 37 billion pounds all of the public sector strikers if we pay all of their demands that would only total 28 billion pounds so we'd have change left over to pay all of our public sector workers just from applying the correct level of taxation to excessive wealth you know and i think that sort of thing is what keeps the fire in me to say, the system, there's, not a, there's a wonderful quote that says, the system isn't broken, it's working exactly as it should. It's been designed this way. And that's what yeah. I want to get to. Yeah. It's a design flaw. I want to get to correcting the design flaw.
1: The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding, plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now, back to the show.
3: I think you and I are similar in that I, I think the anger for everyone is directed in the wrong direction. You know, take the tax issue, for example. These are all these billionaires and doing zero illegal activity. Everything they're doing is 100% legal. Yeah. Right? Mm. So the anger is misdirected. It shouldn't be at them, it's at the policymaking, is where it should be directed. Mm. Mm. And in theory, you can change that by voting for the Tribune of the Plebs, your MP, right? So, mm. but
4: you know. So, exactly. People are worrying about whether or not they should carry a disposable coffee cup with them. What they yeah. should be worrying about is who's representing them in government and what they're voting for. You know, that, that's really what we should be worrying about is making our leaders lead.
3: Yeah, someone explained. So I, I, I'm a big fan of Rome because my view is nothing in the world is new. Everything that's going on now, you've seen a hundred times before. So if you look yeah. back in Rome, there were the plebs, the plebiscite, the voters, us, right? Mm. Then there was the tribune of the plebs, the MPs. An and MP's job, certainly in North America, and I'm pretty sure it's the same in the UK's, They have to raise money. If you want to know who's going to be running, see who raises the most money, right? So the Tribune of Plebs is actually owned by the oligarchy, right? By the people who pay the money. This is Rome 101. Everything we are doing now has been done before, you know? So I don't know how you disrupt that system without the plebs en masse revolting. Yeah. Well,
4: I think that's what happened with Extinction Rebellion. You know, it activated people who... They just knew something was wrong, but they didn't know what to do about it. And it just brought people out onto the streets. And it had an incredible, incredible impact. It changed my life and many, many other people I've spoken to. And I think without that, we wouldn't have got the UK government to commit to the net zero, you know, the legally binding net zero by 2050 target. You know, we were the first country in the world to do that. I think the interest in COP and what's gone on at COP has come from all of that. And I I really think it was a paradigm shifting moment. I think, unfortunately, the... The powers, uh, you know, of media and so on, and and right-wing messaging has meant that that movement has burnt out, you know, and has actually been turned in on itself. In that, you know, we're now chastised as being, you know, middle-class white, out of touch, you know, whatever. It's a shame because that movement had so much energy, and I think that has kind of fizzled out. But I think that what it has then spawned is a lot more awareness in people, and I think we're due a second kind of eruption of that, maybe in a slightly different way, but. I'm trying to now take people to a place where they can identify as being an activist and feel empowered in what they do as a professional to yeah. change and change at scale, not just change their company, but change their industry.
3: And that, that's the key word scale, right? You, we need to affect change at scale, right? Just one mm. fan of the consumer rebellion, because, you yeah, what would Gandhi do? He'd have, a, he'd have a passive strike en masse, right? So that guy broke the biggest empire the world has ever seen with passive striking. There's a lesson there. But, you know, it, you're right. There, It sucks from the bottom up and the top down is what we're saying
4: here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're at a point, I really think we are at a point, you know, look at the energy crisis, look yeah. at Brexit, look at, you know, the yeah. COVID and all of the inequalities that that's thrown up. I think, I really hope that, and I see a lot of people are at a point where they're looking around going, there's got to be, there's something wrong. There's something really wrong. What can we do about it? And I think, you know, I think that I'm personally trying to tap into that frustration that I hear coming from a lot of people to say, right, right. Take that frustration. Don't squash it down. You know, don't meditate on it. Use it. (laughs) (laughs) Let it feed your soul to yeah. drive you to do something about this because you you do have power. You just need to find where that power is. Mm.
3: You have this sort of like um, equation that's probably unsolvable, right? You've got a, you're running a business, you've got clients to keep happy, you're an activist, and then mm. there's what you're doing with your own personal core values. And you've got to resolve those three elements of that equation, right? So I yeah. suppose the first question that comes to my mind is, you know, you've moved from sustainability consultant to activist how has that affected clients are they seeing you as too much of a hand low rebel
4: <laughs> it's really interesting i think it does divide people so i've only ever once had feedback that i'm too activist right and to be honest i was delighted because the person who said that to me is a massive stiff so i was like i absolutely love that you said that to me. I'm going to write that on my, you know, success wall. So, you know, that, that to me was like a compliment. You know, I, I love that you said that about me. I love that because it means I'm nothing like you and therefore, you know, I'm doing the right thing. I probably, you know, I mean, being a bit more serious about it, I probably do scare away quite a lot of people. And I would say that, in a personal sense as well. Like you probably don't want to be sitting next to me at a dinner party. You know, I can really go off on
2: one.
5: <laughs> Just banging on about this thing all the time. Yeah, well,
2: one, you're an engineer, and two, you're an activist. That never goes. That's not a social uh, formula for...
4: <laughs> exactly. I am definitely the bacon at the bar mitzvah, yeah. It is a tr- really tricky line, and, and I'm sure people in the background have said, mm, you know, I, I don't think she's really the right one for us, you know. But I don't mind that because I am, I'm agitating because I believe in it. You know, this is my passion. I'm not going to tailor it for anybody. It's, this is my life's purpose now. I'm not doing this as a sales tactic. I'm not doing it as a marketing position. You know, I'm not going to change it because somebody says that they don't find it palatable. This is who I am now. And if you want to work with me, this is what you're going to get. Having said that, the reality, you know, and I suppose the other thing is my clients seek me out because of that. You know, I'm now taking a huge amount of work from other sustainability consultants who are very vanilla, who are doing the usual things. Clients who want more are really frustrated, and they're they're challenging their sustainability consultants, and they're not really getting anything back. And so they're seeking me out, and they're coming to me saying, "I heard you speak; that the approach is really refreshing. I know we're not doing enough, and I really need an alternative point of view with somebody who really means it." So. That for me is kind of inadvertently has turned into something of a USP, which is, you know, you come to element four when you're serious about change. If you just want somebody who's going to write you a a policy, there are thousands of consultants out there who will do that. But if you want to be challenged, if you want kindly, you know, uh, compassionately challenged, but if you want somebody to call bullshit on what's going on in your organization, we can do that and we will do it in a way that is not storming your AGM. You know, we're not going to,
3: we will work for... No,
4: exactly. We're not, you know, we understand that the system has been built this way and the way to make money is to exploit resources. That is simply the way the system is constructed. And so we are not here to blame and shame those who are genuinely trying to go about changing from a polluting model into something better. However, there is a line, and I have walked away from clients before, there is a line which is where it does turn into greenwash, where they say, oh, no, 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 we only want to change this bit. We yeah. don't want to look at that. At which point I'm like, well, why don't you <laughs> look at that? You know, the, this is, we're doing everything or we're doing nothing. Yeah. And you don't have to do everything in year one. But we do need to have the humility to look at everything and to generally, and to create a strategy that moves us away from that polluting model into something right. better. Right. So intent is everything where I'm yeah. concerned, you know, and working with organizations that are approaching this with a sense of humility and openness, who are interested in the journey, who are not hiding anything away, everything is open for discussion. And we are completely crystal clear about the realities of the capitalist economy as well. We can't all go off and be volunteers and, you know, shake placards in the street. We've got to earn a living. But we can also be actors for change in our sectors and be thought leaders and drive, lobby and push for positive change whilst acknowledging the reality of business today. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I stunned you in silence. I often do that.
3: No, no. So it's just a <laughs> I, keep, I keep coming back to Gandhi, right? So let's say Gandhi was around now he, and he was an environmental activist. He would be pushing for consumer disobedience, right? And not blaming people. Mm. You know, just you know, be the change you want to be, be the example you want to be, right? To misquote mm. him a little bit. So I like mm. that. I like that a lot. So I was walking through Broadgate last, late last year like you do, and uh, I went by this massive development British land are doing on the corner, right? They've knocked down this 80s building. They're putting up another big building, right? And on that British land, I think they're one of the better ones, but it says this is going to be a net zero building. Mm -hmm. Now, first I thought, oh, yeah, of course it is. Ha ha. And they're doing it with offsets, right? So it's going to be an electric building with offsets. So in my view, that's not net zero. Mm How do you feel about offsets? So I'll tell you my definition of an offset. If a fat guy's yeah. paid to stand next. If a skinny guy is paid to stand next to a fat guy, is that fat guy certified slim?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. It's I mean it's a really it, it's very very topical because there's a huge controversy in the carbon market, the voluntary carbon market yeah. at the moment. Rightly so. Rightly so. Lots of projects have been outed by investigative journalists as selling phantom credits or massively overstating the benefits of these schemes. And it's it's high time that this was blown wide open because a lot of organisations have been making a lot of money. And when I say organisations, I don't mean charities, I mean big traders in corporate, you know, in carbon credits have been making a fortune out of this. Oh, yes. Lots of consultancies, lots of brokers. And lots of organizations have been enabled to greenwash their operations, exactly as you say. Now, when it comes to net zero buildings, you know, there is a different element there. We work on buildings that are addressing carbon emissions, and the devil is very much in the detail, you know. And this is where you can't just accept a blanket statement this is a net zero building. This is where we come in. We, you know, we, we, dig into what is it you actually mean? What have you counted? Because everything is about the boundary that you set. Have you included all of the embodied carbon in that building? Have you included all of the logistics, you know, the the sourcing of those materials? Have you included end-of-life impacts? You know, is there there was a huge controversy last year. I'm not sure if you saw it where Marks & Spencer's, their big flagship store in central London, the biggest Marks & Spencer store, had put forward a planning application to knock down this store, a really old listed building, beautiful building, knock it down and build it new. And the whole life carbon assessment that they provided demonstrated that this was the best thing to do in terms of carbon. But what they had done is they had only compared a light touch, lick of paint refurbishment of their existing old building versus a complete demolition and new build of a super efficient new building. What they hadn't compared was a major retrofit upgrade of the existing building. And so they'd presented to the, the mayor of London this case where undoubtedly The study demonstrated that the best thing to do for the environment was to knock down the building, but they were only telling half the story. They weren't comparing against the correct model, which was a a retrofit. So you've got to be very, very careful when you accept an environmental story that someone's presenting to you and, and you've got to look at what is it that they stand to gain from this, you know, and what where are they trying to direct our attention and is it away from something that genuinely is the correct answer? Rightly, that became big news, you know, and that was called into inquiry and it was exposed. You know, people at, at the mayor's office came out to say, look what's been going on and we could all go onto the planning portal and see it. But they were paying consultants like me to create those carbon studies. And this is where I've become a big activist in the very critical of the sustainability and environmental consultant industry. And that's probably where I've got my biggest fight because it's an industry that relies on clients paying for services and the clients paying for those services have an agenda. And I believe that, well, it's obvious really, the sustainability community are creating outputs to align with what the client wants it to say, not what necessarily is the right thing to do. Environmentally or socially. Great. 100%. And I have a massive problem with that. Yeah. So I'm calling that out quite a lot. Quite to the, um, yeah, it doesn't make me very popular. I have yeah, to say, you're just
3: winning friends <laughs> everywhere right now,
4: right? I am, aren't I? I'm just like a joy to be around.
2: <laughs> to be in that position is empowering. And Adam knows this. And, you know, prior to me retiring, we did um, some analysis on some past house projects. And we were called to the design charrette. And I, again, I'm never the most popular guy at the table because I have to tell the architect, or I have to tell the client in front of the architect just how badly they've screwed up the model of this house. And, you know, I mean, you have to do it with diplomacy. You just, you can't, you just can't, you know, otherwise you're going to be out of work, right? Yeah. <laughs> but there, there is a joy that comes about from being right you know, and calling out design and calling out, I mean, you can build passive houses all over the world, but if you don't actually look at some of the potential problems, then you still have the problem. You haven't fixed it, right? Mm. But an hour worth of real thought, deep thought in the design and in the architecture architecture of the building, the enclosure design, and then having a client that's willing to listen, yeah. you know? You can still have your yeah. beautiful structure, but you just have to do some modifications here And then that passive house will, in fact, be passive. It won't be just some kind of brand name stuck on the side of the house. It will, in fact, be what it's supposed to be.
4: Yeah. It's an interesting point you raise about the client because, you know, Adam, we've had this conversation before about, I find consultants are quite quick to say, well, if the client wants it, we'll deliver it. Or if the client had asked for a Mm. sustainable building, we would have made it sustainable. I call that out because most of the time, what the clients are paying for from their consultants is the best advice. And to say the client should have asked for this building to be, you know, we built it round. Well, they didn't ask for it to be square. It's a similar thing to me. It's the client doesn't really know what they want. You're the professional it's advisor happened. and you yeah. are employed to give them the best advice. And if you're not giving them the best advice in terms of sustainability, you're negligent. You're not, you're not doing your job. So, as uh, so many of the design teams that we work with just Essentially, and I, I get it, you know, I get it that time is, we're all under pressure, but there's a cut and paste attitude of just designing what you know, rather than <laughs> constant professional development of right. learning and pushing the envelope and challenging clients and saying to the client, you know, we're not going to wait for you to ask for something sustainable. What we de- what we design is sustainable. That's just as standard yeah. because we get it. We've trained our people. We, you know, we've engaged with, different, we've, we've tested our designs in different scenarios and we're curious. And so a lot of the time, you know, I feel sympathy for clients because as a client, there's so many things that they could know, but they pay experts to do that for them. And I think part of the expertise has to be an awareness of sustainability. So I do challenge all of our design teams a lot to say, no, 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 we're working all the time on buildings that are built as glass boxes you know in the initial design stages and it's like no you can't do that anymore i know you have been doing it but we need to stop doing that now you know and really throwing it back at them and saying this is a creative design challenge now you know yeah.
3: yes a lot of clients are in bubbles that's for sure and some people don't want their bubble burst right that's really what we're talking about here they're in this little, yeah, like, I think, self-hyping yeah. group <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah.
4: I think that clients are more than happy to move on sustainable buildings. It's just they've been fed this story for decades that it's more expensive, it's risky, it's difficult. Yeah. I don't. That's not true. That's not true anymore. It's just that that's what, frankly, poorly educated marketing agents or, you know, yeah. old-fashioned designers or quantity surveyors, you know, yeah. cost consultants are telling them because that could have been true a long time ago, but they've yeah. never moved forward from that position. And I think there's still that entrenched attitude. Now, there are so many examples of incredible buildings. You know, we're working on a massive Passive House development at the moment, student accommodation, Passive House, a huge campus of it. I mean, it's so exciting, you know, and it's really challenging our design teams to deliver that. But everyone involved in it is so excited about getting the opportunity to do this and taking then that learning of of we've really going to be pushing the dial and as a sector then because we're doing it it's going to have to be done by others because we're changing the minimum expectation in the sector
3: yeah it takes big projects to to shift something right
4: Mm. brave clients but I think also with design teams who feel you know here's a client who will listen now we've got to really push because we've got this great opportunity of a client who does want to hear they are going to listen let's really drive this and sell the benefits
2: i, I think I it's really important for companies when they put forth a person that's that uh, represents what the company is all about that that individual's own personal interests are transparent and i'll give you an example where we got hired by a really large international company who had offices in the united states and the individual that was hired to represent that company consulted with us and he was in charge of business development and I thought his voice his representation was that of the client and the reality was is he, it was very self-serving as I discovered because when we gave him the bad news which was they were interested in introducing into North America something that came from Europe and I said don't come all you're going to do is you're going to dilute market share. You're going to reduce profits. It's, you're not going to have a sustainable business here at all. And he was incredibly offended. He didn't know I was going to say that at the meeting. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because for him, his business was to develop the business. And that was that part of his plan was to, was this particular project. And I scuttled it, you know. But I think it's really important that from a consultant point of view, is, is that you will have, you'll be faced with people who, you think represent the client, but their own self interests are in the way.
4: A hundred percent. That's absolutely true. And I think this is where we need to, and we do work a lot with project managers, cost consultants—you know, the, the people on the team—to bring them along with us because there are reasons why people are behaving the way that they behave, and it's really important that we work with our clients from the very beginning. You know, Reba stage zero, so really uh, before they've even purchased the site, you know, to then start embedding these principles and so it's in the brief it's in everybody's consultancy or design brief you know that everything is fully costed we're all on the same page we're conducting workshops with people before they're even fully appointed you know to make sure that Mm. there is no misunderstanding from day one about what this project is all about and it's been 25 years of doing this you know and you don't just learn it overnight that kind of spotting when people are pushing back. Trying to get to the bottom of what's behind it, you know, yeah. and and very often the the process is flawed. You know, I've, again, you know, Adam and I have spoken about this in the past that the REBA stages are REBA, you know, Royal Institute of British Architects. They've set up this process for developing projects, you know, and you've got REBA stage zero through to which is sort of pre-acquisition, early concept stage, through to you know, handover and then occupation of a building and, and everything in between through your design stages and construction. But when you're trying to bring sustainable principles into a project, those REBA stages don't work very well because it, it's an old flow of of project information and decision making that in a lot of cases needs to be upended when you're doing sustainability work. So I'll take the whole life carbon assessment as a, an example We need options. We need need a lot of information on design options and uh, cost information, cost plan information, and even a return to the materials schedule, which we've kind of gotten rid of in UK design and construction industry. And different consultants need to provide information at different stages of the process than they're used to doing. Now, if we are appointed as a sustainability consultant during the design process, which is what often happens... By then, people have already priced the job. They've already so- decided how they're going to deliver it in terms of, you know, the mm. teams in their company, the work that needs doing, you know, the consecutive tasks. We then land in the project team and say, right, we need the cost plan. We need a schedule of materials. We need this. We need that. Oh, no, we're not going to give you that until Reba the stage four, which is much later. And we say, no, no, no. But if we're going to do the carbon assessment with any meaningful output, meaning that you can make decisions on the basis you need to be able to, you know, assess different options and then make decisions on the outcome of this carbon assessment. We need a certain level of detail much earlier than you're used to providing it. So that's one of the, that's just one example out of many where if a client is serious about sustainability, they need to understand that the sustainability consultant is not just somebody that lands like the fire consultant or something else, you know, during the design process, this has to be the skeleton upon which we layer the the flesh of the development. You know, we, we need to establish the sustainability principles right from the beginning before pencil even touches paper about what this development looks like in order to drive, get the right price, get the consultants aligned with the process, make sure that there's not changes to the design later on, you know, and all the things that add to cost. There you go, that's mine. talking about
3: my what Ben Freud <laughs> talks about. Thinking from right to left, not left to right. Think with the end in mind, right? Start yeah. at the very mm. beginning with the end in mind. It's horrifying how little that happens, actually. Mm. It really is. So we're, we're getting in the end, but I have to ask you one more question, actually. So I've been lucky enough to work on projects in 21 countries, and, I, and I'm i saying this because I'm a Brit. I'm also a Canadian. I think the Brits have one of the most aggressive best building codes or building regulations, and they're pretty much at the front of trying to move towards a low-carbon, net-zero built environment. Now, when I say that to people who have mostly worked in the UK, they're horrified. But I can tell you, if you saw what was going on in Canada, it would make you weep. You'd get on the plane and go straight back to the UK. If you wanted to, <laughs> yeah. do what you do here? <laughs> so where do you think this is going in five and ten years' time, sort of like in your sector? Where do you think we're going to be?
4: Good question. You've caught me off guard with that. It's really interesting to hear what you say about international construction, yeah. because I, I mean, there's so much in the UK that we're not doing. So to the idea that there are so many more people, you know, in particularly in the global north, yeah. you know, in, in wealthy developed yeah. countries that aren't doing the sorts of things we're doing is um, frankly <laughs> shocking. But I do think then, you know, one of the other things I'm really passionate about is information sharing and you know sharing best practice so all of the projects i work on one of the principles on every project that we embed from the beginning is data collection data sharing entering into pilot projects for you know new standards uploading data open source data from the project to different platforms so that other teams can learn from yes. it and that is something i am utterly dedicated to because when you try and find information on building performance you know building data it's sustainable practice the tools that people use to make yeah. these decisions you know it's really not available and everyone's squirreling mm. away trying to create their own systems you yeah. know what a waste of time we could pool our resources and we could open source all of this and we could help everybody to move into sustainable development much more quickly there's an attitude i think still which is very old fashioned about Competitive advantage, you know we're going to keep this as a like um, a marketing tool or like an yeah. advantage over our competitors. I don't see that, and I think I hope that in five years' time, I try to instill this in all of the clients that I work with that sharing your information positions you in a way. It's a great marketing thing because it shows that you have the confidence in your position to share this. You are a leader, you know you're, you're a thought leader, and you are so confident in what you are doing that by the time people have read what you're doing, you're already on to the next thing. Let it go. Let it go. Give it away. Move forwards. And in that way, other people don't have to waste time and resources on learning the same lessons that you learned. You can just share. And I think that, I hope in five years' time that that message will have really instilled in more people to say we don't have time to keep making the same mistakes in every one of the millions of development companies out there. We all need to start coming together to collaborate, share these tools. And I think, if I may, just one last point. Yeah. I think our professional institutions and trade bodies have failed us utterly. Right. Yeah. I think they have entirely failed us because these are enormous organizations with huge reach and they could be the bodies that share this information that mine the sector for data and for tools and resources and create systems and professional standards that drive sustainability and instead they've just sat on their haunches and collected their membership fees and allowed us all to like you know grope around in the dark trying to find our own solutions i think it's time now for these professional institutions and trade bodies to stand up and start giving their members real guidance on what because everyone's going what the hell do we do we want to be greener but we don't know how almost all businesses pay subscriptions to somebody you know that's that's where we should be looking
2: yeah we've had jerry ulison on twice now and uh I think you would find agreement with him, and he with you on that that statement for sure, George. My question to you here, as we end up winding down this interview, has to do with corporate guidance documents. You know, I was raised by a, a person, my dad, who was very much the quintessential businessman, and you know, and learning about defining early on in a company why do you exist. What do you want to see this company become? You know, what are the goals and the, and the strategies and the tactics that you need to, to engage to make your company successful? As you travel and you engage with your clients, where they want to do the sustainability stuff, they want to be the stewards, both from a societal but an earth point of view, you see incongruencies, and when you see those incongruencies, are they willing to change their corporate guidance documents so that they become aligned with your philosophies?
4: Um, smaller businesses, 100 percent. know owner-led businesses are where that owner has kind of reached a point of frustration. You know they are like ready to rip it all up and you know train everybody and put all the policies in place and really go through the supply chain like a dose of salt. You know, and I find when I work with people like that, it's just like, yes, you know, they, when they get it, when they get it, you know, that they kind of get that activist enthusiasm then. And for them, then it becomes part of their purpose. And that's what I live for is when you see the penny drop with somebody and you see that actually this is not a threat to their business. This is an enormous opportunity and they embrace it. That for me is like, oh, that's a good day at work. You know, it's a great day at work when we can get to that point. Other businesses, you know, it's really interesting when you work with bigger companies that there are good people in all companies who feel frustrated and want to make a change. But generally, of you know, and it's, it's really obvious, isn't it? The bigger the structure, the more layers of management. Generally, you find there are good people wanting to do things, but they're ultimately constrained and they are so frustrated. And they either end up, in my experience, like coming to a sort of state of delusion that what they can do is enough and end up defending that position or a point of frustration where they then feel they can't actually work at this company anymore and feel like they're doing enough. And so they then, then that in them elicits a sort of disquiet about, well, what do I do? You know, and that's the journey I went on of like ultimately going, right, I'm an activist. And actually I see this as an opportunity for my life to live in a way which is aligned you know my, my purpose and my work are aligned and that gives me great joy <laughs> great pain as well because when it doesn't work out you just you do feel it but it's also makes my work endlessly fascinating to me and I feel empowered and so going back to your question I work with both large and small companies I think that as is always the way the change will not come from the big companies the change will come from the small disruptors That's always the way it's been forever. And I think that when enough small companies go, no, we don't want that big business model. We're going to do things differently and we're going to do it successfully. You know, and we're going to challenge the market share of these big beasts. Mm. That's when the big beasts go, oh, hang on a minute. Oh my God, actually what we're doing isn't enough. So working with the big companies is fine. You're only ever going to get so far. The change really comes from the smaller disruptors really going for it. And, um, and then the board go, hang on, how come we're losing market share? What's going on here?
3: I totally agree
2: with that. I think Adam does too.
3: Totally. So my, my final question is this, and I stole this from someone else on another podcast, but it's always a good question, is what should we be talking about today that we're not actually talking about right now? Right? What, what should people be noticing that they're not noticing?
4: I think well I've covered a fair few of them I think in what we've what we've already talked about about the real change is not where you think it is it's not in doing your recycling at home or carrying that water bottle the real change is looking up yeah looking up in terms of the company you work for the industry you work in who regulates that you know where does that come from I think the attitude I try and instill in everyone I train and work with is to be that five-year-old in the car saying, why, 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 yeah. all the time. Like, you know, that, like I started off by saying, the system isn't broken, it's designed this way. So why is it working this way? And be that one going, don't just throw up your hands and say, oh, I can't do anything about this. That's not good enough it's not good enough anymore. You can, you just need to get to the crux of the problem. And so, you know, I think what we're looking at usually is just what's right in front of our faces. That's a distraction because what's in your face is not really, it's the symptom, it's not the disease. Yeah. And I think there is a lot more going on. And I think dwelling on that, if you're if you're coming up against something, particularly in sustainability and or any system, really, where you're frustrated at lack of progress. And it's looking at why, why is that happening? And follow that thread through to the root cause and then fight the root cause. You know, that's the thing for me.
3: I like that. Why, daddy? Why, 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 why?
4: (laughs) Why, why, why? But you say, you know, well, let's give an example on a project. Like, we can't put in more sustainable building uh, we can't, you know. I, I say on our projects, let's go fabric first. We should always design fabric first. You know, you should never yeah. just build a glass box and then stick a whole load of co- air conditioning in it. What's the fabric of the building? And you you go into a refurbishment project, you know, and they've they've priced for loads of fancy air source heat pumps, but they haven't touched the fabric. And then you say, okay, well, why? Well, because it, it you know, there's there's no budget for it. Okay, why? Well, what do you mean why? There's just no budget. Okay, no, but why? Who set the budget? Oh, the client set the budget. So why did they set it at that level? Oh, because, you know, they used like an old calculation formula of like it's, it's X percent of land value and da, da, da. Okay, so why, why is that the, the calculation? Does that take into account the fact that we're in a climate crisis and actually the, the calculation is wrong? So the original back of fag packet calculation that they used to establish the budget for this project is that correct? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. That came from the RICS. Or, okay, so why? And, you know, and you follow the thread, you don't just stop at the point where they say there's no budget. You keep following the thread until you get to the problem.
3: Yeah. To, to your point, it goes back to the institutions, right?
4: <laughs> Undoubtedly. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, look, I think you are the first activist in 80-odd episodes that we've had, so I'm feeling good about that already. <laughs> <laughs>
4: I'm well, I've, I think that's a, a wonderful position to be in. I'm very yeah. grateful to be your first activist. May you have many more. <laughs> well,
3: I'll tell you what, whenever I do the analysis every year about you know, which episodes perform best, nine times out of 10 is the ones where we in- interviewed like strong women in construction and in the business. So, yeah, you know, no pressure, <laughs> but I'm expecting your episode to be a killer. Uh, so, anyway, oh, great. thank you so much for coming on. I really, yeah, thanks, Georgia. Shout out to Ken Hawkins for for connecting me with you.
4: Absolutely. Yeah, he's fabulous. He's a a real cheerleader for me. It's it's great. He's
3: the one who first said, yeah, you should should speak to this person. Uh, Absolutely right. So thank you so much for coming. It's been awesome.
1: The Edifice Complex
5: will continue in just a moment. Are you struggling with paperwork, spreadsheet overload and project management? Then Blue Rhythm is the solution to help you. Streamline your commissioning and project management process go paperless, increase efficiency, and save money. Blue Rhythm is commissioning and project management software by practitioners for practitioners. Adapting to your workflows and processes, and doing things your way, Blue Rhythm provides painless and fast onboarding by bringing your existing workflows, forms, checklists, and issues logs into Blue Rhythm for you. You can use their pre-built templates to customize your commissioning workflows and Blue Rhythm can fully handle the transition from your current software platform. Blue Rhythm is secure, scalable, and reliable, backed by amazing support, and accessible 24-7 on any Windows, iOS, or Android device. Why are you still using paper and hard-to-control spreadsheets? Start your free Blue Rhythm account today at bluerhythm.com. Are we there yet? Yes, we are.
0: The future promised real-time monitoring and control of our buildings, and now that is a reality with SensorSuite. The only question you need to ask yourself is, how much energy and water is my building wasting each year? SensorSuite will do the rest. With SensorSuite solutions, any existing building and equipment can be retrofitted with smart sensors and controls that generate an industry-leading high-resolution data feed, unlocking a level of operational optimization and visibility across your entire building portfolio. This allows analysis and targeted interventions that turn old analog buildings into intelligent, energy-efficient grid resources, allowing monitoring and control at your fingertips through Apple, Android, and Windows devices. Make a difference to the environment and start saving money today. Go to censorsuite.com or call toll-free 1-855-773-6767. And now, back to the show.
2: It's always great Adam. an activist. I don't recall on all the episodes that we've done, someone had activists in their bio. Maybe we've had one or two, but what I liked about Georgia, I mean, she said some really deep things. And one of them, Messages that I got out of that had to do with you know using your frustration to empower you. Yeah. Don't let your frustrations beat you up. Uh, <laughs> you know, or demoralize you, yeah. you know. And that's a huge lesson for anybody that, and you know, I think about kids today. There's a lot of kids today that have passion. They don't like, they don't like what they see going on. Just like we see things going on that just aren't right.
3: Yeah.
2: And they'll all experience frustration, but don't let it get you down. Like use it to empower you. I thought that was a really great message mm-hmm. from her
3: that's a really good point. So that when you're young and passionate, you wind up getting angry and violent sometimes. Right. And yeah. uh, that's the excuse people have for keeping you down. You're giving them an excuse to punch you in the face at that point. You got to be yeah. smarter. And this the activism is the way. And there's different forms of activism, right? You know, on a scale yeah. of one to 10, 10 being a terrorist and one being a passive sit at home, <laughs> jockey. you know, you need yeah. to be in the, in the, between the five and seven range to like be annoying but not to the point where they can, like, point you out as a disruptor to, to like, you know, to arrest you or to, you know, when it's all very well blocking traffic. But, you know, what people forget is you are actually, instead of attacking, like, the oligarchs or the people you want to get to, all you're doing is attacking working people and yeah. having them against you, right? There's a lack of imagination. I, always, I kept coming back to Gandhi, you know, like, if he was an environmentalist, and I'm pretty sure he would be if he was around today, you know, he would just say, stop, stop doing this stuff. Be be disobedient. Yeah. It's very hard to beat someone up when they're being disobedient, right? You know, yeah. so if we en masse decided, you know what? I think I'm only going to buy a cell phone every five years. Yeah, that would devastate <laughs> things <laughs> overnight. <laughs> Do you know what, what I mean? And Gandhi would so off. be able to pull that off. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's yeah. disobedience. There's a difference between terrorism and disobedience, right? So disobedience can be you know, Absolutely. we're all yeah. not going to work today. Deal with it. You know, that would yeah. get solved so fast. But then <laughs> you know, you go, you don't want to be the public ringleader of that, because they would they you would you would slip in the shower and fall into a hail of bullets at some point, right? But yeah.
2: And her comment actually feeds right into that. There's a great segue, and that is, you know, the symptom is not the disease, right? Yeah. You Know and that when you look at the problems, you have to look up, like you, it's not what it appears to be, yeah. And that is so true, you know. And when these people want to create change, these people I want to create change, you know, you want to create change. We would, I mean, a lot of our pod, this podcast is about challenging the status quo, exactly. you know, we're all looking for change, and but you and I, like, like many of our guests. And like Georgia, like we kept asking why, like, why is it done this way? You know, what is the history behind this? And does it actually serve today's world? And I think that message that she said, like, you know, when you're looking at a problem and you want to get passionate about it, make sure that your passion is effective and make sure it's directed at the right thing. And that means looking up, like, where's the problem exist?
3: It's really interesting. because I've always thought this all disobedience mass consumer, is the power, but she's right. Just as effective and as powerful is what's going on above you. Yeah, and really, you need a strategy to address both ends of that, right? Needs the bottom yeah. up and the top down. And uh, yeah, I, I think she's a great example of that, and she's doing God's work quite frankly. <laughs> you know what I
2: mean, well, yeah, and you have to keep in mind that you know her degree was in environmental engineering, and yeah. you know she has when you look at her resume it's a path like you can see the path that she's been on and it's and she's done volunteer work you know she's with the she program on climate change the unesco thing i was really intrigued with that you know when you talk that's a you know an amazing organization to be involved with and uh, particular with her particular volunteer which was on youth and the environment her passion is what you see is what you get
3: yeah absolutely you know?
2: She yeah. talked about you know doing the veneer, and she said, and and that's when you can tell when someone when you actually sit when you walk your own talk. And she said, well, why am I doing that? Like it's a veneer. Like the clients aren't actually doing anything. You know, it's like one project out of a hundred projects. Well, what good does that do, right? And for her, that wasn't good enough. I like the fact yeah. when we
3: talked about that, like you know, the questions in my mind: Does it cost you clients? And her answer was, yeah, some of them, but then I get other clients, right? Which is Absolutely right. Right. I love that. You're self selecting yeah. clients to work with by being authentic to your core values, which is what she's doing. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I love that a lot. I, I think that's a great example of how to run a business and how to be an activist without being a terrorist, one of a better word. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah.
2: But, yeah. And the other point was is that the clients oftentimes don't know what they want. You know, Tom Peters used to say that. Like, I I was listening to Tom like a long, long time ago. And he had issues even back then, like 30 years ago, about clients. Yeah. You know, clients don't know what they want.
3: Yeah, you the know? trick and, is not to berate them and make them feel small about it. The trick is to guide them to where they need yeah. to be,
1: right? And Absolutely. I, I suspect Georg,
3: Georgia is good at that. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, the, the typical dude response is, like, oh, you don't know what you're doing, follow me, I know what I'm doing, you know. And that's not how you get clients to come along on anything. At any level, yeah, got to—it's got to be uh, effective persuasion for one of a better word trademark. Yeah, I mean, we see that all the
2: time, particularly in associations where, yeah. you know, they they want change and they believe in change and they're and they you know their 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 uh, trajectory is honorable, right? When they ask though for contributions to that path, lots of times they accept just. Polishing of the same; it's the same thing that you had last year, but it's just a little bit different. You know, it's not radically different, right? And it's so it it doesn't help them.
3: No, I love to comment as well about like the associations, like the professional engineer associations, the architectural associations, like the RICS. They're just mushing along, not really upsetting anyone above or below them, taking the fees. You know, now we all know, you and I both know there's work being done in these organizations, but her thing is, it's not really effective. They're effective well, at keeping themselves going, but are they effective at addressing what's in front of us as a society?
2: Yeah, and that's where leadership comes into play, right? Yeah. Like making sure that the leaders, and that's, I wanted to talk to her about this. And Well, you know this, when you have a company that you start or an individual starts Uh, And they're successful. It develops its own culture. uh, But at some time, there's transition that takes place. And the transition is incredibly important. If you want that culture to ride on that continuum forever, you have to have a deep-rooted culture. And oftentimes, we see that disrupted when owners will bring in a business consultant and make them the new CEO or CFO or whatever the position is. Like
3: the equivalent of a dictator for six months, right? Who comes in. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, exactly. And they're, you know, within a year or two, the company has lost direction. And and because the guy that comes in or the woman that comes in wasn't there at the beginning, they don't get the culture. They think that their whole job there is to change it rather than, you know, the company was successful to begin with. Yeah, for a reason and yeah. that culture runs deep it's like the ocean currents and i'm not saying that cultures shouldn't change i think that's that would be naive i mean uh, things change and cultures have to change but cultures are hard to change
3: yes yeah because i resist change right naturally they, re- they yeah. do i think you know
2: and, I, and again when i think about georgia and her journey that she's on you're right. I mean, she's, she gets to deal with the clients that she wants and the clients that don't follow her yeah, philosophy. I, yeah.
3: Not to be said for that. No, again, I still comes back to No is the most powerful word in the English language, right? No, I'm not going to work with you. We're not aligned. Let's just yeah. don't do this. Everyone's yeah. happy. Actually, that is a great decision for everyone in that relationship, right? <laughs> yeah. Somewhere I have a,
2: There was a reply. There was two uh, lords. So this is, this is back in your days. You know, the British Empire and they hated each other. And one of them said something along the lines of, you know, our ethos are so divergent that we'll never come to agreement. Uh, and in the nicest way, he basically told the guy to F off
3: and I don't want to talk to you anymore, <laughs> as a British lord would do. In right? a yeah, most like <laughs> savage put down, but sounded awesome. <laughs> <laughs> totally,
2: I, I I have to find it I, One day I thought I was going to, I need to get that thing printed and framed It was so well said, you know
3: <laughs> Yeah, the British are great at uh, erudite put-downs You can't lay on a to that, of that right. If you get yeah. that, that'd be rich What was okay. that Churchill, Churchill and Lady, you
2: can't remember her name She was accusing him of being a drunk <laughs> And he said to her I may be drunk, but you're ugly. But in the morning, I'll be sober. <laughs> yeah.
3: That's the level we're talking about here, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's a mic drop moment. That's a boom. <laughs> <out>. <laughs> okay, yeah. man. Listen, that was a good one. I'll see you on the next one. All right, Adam. Cheers. Yeah, bye. Goodbye.
1: You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.